welcome to Hey All You Zombies, our weekly Google Plus Hangout series in which we talk about pop culture, counterculture, and the kind of culture that's often overlooked. My name is Chris Abel. I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Richard Krauss. How are you? Nice to see you. Nice to see you all. I'm well, thank you. And actually, I think, you know what time it is? I think it's time to check to see what our friends in the U.S. government are doing. Well, Lomper, bomper, stomper, do, tell me, tell me, tell me, do, tell me, magic prison, tell me today, what's our friends doing in the NSA? I see Robert listening yeah. into a phone call between a woman and her doctor. Yeah. I see Anthony checking out video of someone opening up their Christmas presents. So, yes, we will be talking a little bit about spying later on. Well, I, listen, I'm, I'm going to tell you, uh, this morning on the radio, when I was doing my radio hit, I found audio from 2008 of Shia LaBeouf, and he was presenting uh, or, or chatting up a movie that he had just released called Evil Eye. Let me just double check and make sure that's right. About surveillance, yeah. Uh, DJ Caruso directed it, Shia LaBeouf, Michelle Monaghan, Rosario Dawson, Michael Chiklis. And um, he's on The Tonight Show talking about this. And he said that in 2008, movies released then, probably shot in 2007, there was an FBI consultant on the show who said, well, yeah, I mean, we've been listening to people's phone calls for years. I mean, this is nothing, this is nothing new. And Shia's like, ah, oh, whatever, man, I, I don't believe any of that. And uh, I'm not some, like, crazy conspiracy nut. And uh, he said he laughed about it until the FBI guy played a phone call that Shia had made, like, two years previous. And two years before he had actually come on to this project. So, uh, yeah, apparently Shia LaBeouf broke this story. If, he, if the acting thing ever dries up for him, maybe he should uh, get a gig <laughs> at CNN because he, uh, he scooped everybody on this one. Yeah, and we'll get into that. I mean, I've had a very similar reaction when this story broke. I kind of went, uh, this has already been happening. What's going on? Why is this news? Mm -hmm. But uh, we'll dive into that. I thought first off, we'll, we'll start with one of uh, your topics. Well, zombies. Uh, you know, yeah. well, it's a, hey, all you zombies. It, it, you know, it, it struck me. We, we've talked a lot about, uh, both on the radio, you've been on uh, my radio show, we've talked about zombies, and we've talked a great deal about zombies here. The Walking Dead ate up uh, much of, you know, uh, probably about half the shows that we did. We ended up talking about The Walking Dead. Because, you know, zombies have become, I think, the most recent, and kind of the most unlikely pop culture heroes today, but they're everywhere, right? So the Walking Dead finale uh, from recently, you know, April or uh, uh, March, uh, draws 13 million viewers. Crazy. Uh, the movies, there's like Warm Bodies came out uh, around the same time. It was a, a Zomcom about a, a, a zombie who starts to have feelings, sentient feelings for uh, a human girl, and it's discovered in that movie that love can actually make a still heart beat again. Uh, and that movie was very popular. Uh, there was even a retailer called REI that jumped on the bandwagon, the undead bandwagon, when they had a campaign called 13 Essential Tools for Surviving a Zombie Outbreak. All right? So you've got all that stuff, plus, you know, uh, there are... Um, new uh, economic theories 
that are named after zombie movies because I guess they're just trying to keep people interested, draw them in somehow, so they, they give them these flashy names. Um, this week, or I guess next week, um, Brad Pitt headlines a movie called World War Z, which is based on a book by uh, Max Brooks, who is uh, Mel Brooks's son. He writes uh, the Zombie Survival Guide, movies like that. He's written uh, the second book, which is kind of like a, an eyewitness account to this breakout of zombieism that happens around the world. So it's a Brad Pitt movie, and uh, Brad uh, is not the person to talk to apparently, when you're wondering uh, why zombies are so popular, because the quote that I read from him, he said, somebody asked him, and he said, well, as for why zombies are so popular, I have no idea. And that's what Brad Pitt says about this. I mean, when he goes on to explain that the movie has many themes in it. There are themes of, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, a love story in there. there is, there's a great deal about politics in there. There's all sorts of things. It's about class warfare as well as as uh, uh, physical warfare as well. So there's lots of other stuff to talk about. The zombies, even though this movie probably has the highest zombie-to-human ratio of any movie that's going to come out this year or next, probably, um, it, you know, I think he sees it not so much as a zombie movie, but a, a, as a larger picture kind of thing. But, you know, we, we've talked, you and I, I know, about... Uh, the the uh, the popularity of zombies and why and there's been a lot of talk about how when times are tough when people feel disenfranchised or disempowered that zombies become popular again so you think the late 60s you think maybe even in the the late 30s when zombie movies started to pop up every now and again it all all these time frames start to make sense you know uh, and now these days when people are feeling a, a little uh, a little uh, disenfranchised you have uh, the SARS break outbreak and other communicable diseases. You know that that theoretically the idea of of uh, you know a virus that causes causes zombieism uh, could possibly um, you know uh, uh, be happening in real life. So there's that. There's also, and this is something that you brought up on the radio show one time, that in some ways zombies kind of represent an example of control over death. Maybe not, you know, a great deal of control, but, you know, is it some kind of life after death. Yeah, if you, uh, you know, the idea of conquering uh, your own, that vision of you becoming a corpse. You know, the right. zombie is what you will eventually become, in yeah. a sense. That, that rotting flesh, the, the, the putrefaction. And so at least standing up there and being resilient, and, and in all, all the games that we play or the, the movies where people are sitting with a shotgun, just defiantly sort of holding death at right. bay. I think right. there's a little bit of that aspect that people kind of love. That when you go to you go to bed at night and you have zombie dreams, you're surviving it. So I think for a lot of people, it's a it's a positive thing, even as dark and dreary as the uh, imagery tends to be. Yeah, and well, exactly because it does tend to be the 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 Walking Dead. Man, the things that that I saw in that show that were on TV. They're, they're, that's what surprised me. I was not surprised so much by some of the imagery if it had been in a movie, I would have been like, well, whatever, this is what, you know, that's what you're doing. But on television, the idea of someone's head being cleaved in two and slowly splitting apart was something that was, uh, well, it's unusual. So it's yeah, not that it, common, at the very least. And that of all the things, I mean, there have been um, films for many, many decades where there have been portrayals of gratuitous violence, of things that are quite grotesque. Uh, it's odd that this has been the trend that has pulled in, I think, the largest mainstream 
audience. There was right. one of the guests on The Talking Dead where they chat about it afterwards who said, you know, that uh, she felt that she must be getting desensitized to it now because now it doesn't bother her. Whereas the first couple of times she saw the an episode where that kind of action happened, it was a, the, the compunction was to immediately turn it off and just walk away. And right. now it's like, go, 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 yeah, get that zombie. You know, there's been that, that interesting change that has happened to people who aren't by nature drawn to this kind of material. So right. very well, cool. So I was thinking of uh, some other movies. I mean, there are movies like, of course, Night of the Living Dead, and we've talked about that uh, on the show. We talked about the live show, the live sort of, I guess, homage slash uh, comedy that was made uh, from it here in Toronto uh, recently. We talked about that. Um, and so those are classics. But there are some others that are uh, stranger than usual that aren't classics, like uh, Zombie Honeymoon, for instance. Um, I was thinking that maybe the, the great granddaddy, I don't know, the great grand ghoul of weird zombie movies is probably Astro Zombies. And it's not exactly, well, it is a zombie movie. It has the word zombie in the title. But th these are, these are uh, creatures that are kind of cobbled together by a scientist. They, uh, they're, they're constructed out of dead body parts, and then they go on a murderous rampage. So they are constructed zombies. Uh, but it stars John Carradine, or Carradine, who is uh, Keith and David Carradine's father. And uh, he was, you know, at one point... A, a you know a, a hugely famous actor and well respected actor, but near the end of his career succumbed to dr uh, drinking and and uh, making movies like Astro Zombies just to pay the bills. Also stars Tura Satana, who was in Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and was a cult movie legend. Um, but uh, unbelievably, there are two sequels uh, to this. Really? <laughs> Astro Zombies and a song of the same name uh, by the Misfits. There's also a mockumentary called American Zombie, and uh, it, this is a really cool little movie. It's it kind of documents the everyday, and I will put this in air quotes, lives of zombies in, in a community in uh, California, and it's kind of like a, a fake, you know, undead propaganda film that tries to get you to feel sort of some compassion for these creatures because. You know, they, they can be created one of two ways. They There's a, a bite. Of course, the zombie bite will make you uh, into a zombie. But there's also a brain virus that you can catch. And uh, when you do, you go and live in this place. And it's hard to get a uh, credit rating. And you can't get a driver's license and all that stuff. So all those sort of things are woven in here. Uh, but it's a cool little movie. It's tagline. Their advertising tagline is, we're here, we're dead, get used to it. So, uh Pretty fun stuff there, um, but there's loads of these. I mean, uh, you know, I was I was looking around online. I've seen a lot of them, uh, but uh, I mean, some of them I haven't seen. A movie called The Stink of Flesh, and the writer here says this movie has so many bizarre aspects to it. I don't even know where to begin. And you know, in the world of zombie movies and horror movies, uh, if you are a little freaked out and and uh, uh, the, the idea of having too many bizarre aspects in it. Uh, is it must mean that it's quite something. Uh, but we'll throw uh, a trailer for that up on uh, on heyallyouzombies.com. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that the, the, um, the zombie culture has managed to produce so many different takes on the same theme. Yeah. That people can go off and sort of think about it and come back and say, okay, well, you know, now it's going to be uh, uh, zombies that are fast, zombies that are spread through a virus. It's going to be central on, on survival. It's going to be about class systems. It, it just there doesn't seem to be an end in sight towards somebody coming up with a new take 
on the whole zombie mythology. No, I don't think there will be. I mean, in, until people tire of them, and then they will shamble off back to the woods or wherever it is that they go to, uh, until you know, until they they come around because they do tend to be cyclical. You know, uh, George Romero in his zombie movies has always made the zombie uh, apocalypse that he that he portrays. You know, whatever whatever the cause of the zombies is is a. Uh, is a, a comment on something else, you know. It's a comment on consumerism or, or whatever, and uh, and it's interesting. I mean, he makes one of these every four or five years, and and you know people seem to flock to them. But you know, these days there's just so much of it that I fear that we're going to get a little over zombified, and you know, we'll we'll see how uh, how uh, long this stays, you know, absolutely sort of at the center of popular culture. Because I'm not sure it can last. Forever, it will it will wane and and then you know hopefully uh, go up again because I like me a zombie movie. Yeah, well, and we'll have to wait and see. I mean, uh, vampires have kind of gone through that. Werewolves, not so much. They've they've tried to bring werewolves back and it hasn't people quite worked. Werewolves, I don't think they do unless they look like Taylor Lautner in the Twilight movies. Yeah. People don't care about the werewolves. They now it it hasn't helped really that the sort of big studio reboot of the whole werewolf thing with Benicio del Toro was really kind of awful. I mean, I think if you, you know, if they had, if they had uh, uh, done a better job with that movie, it might have been a, you know, it might have been a different story, but that was not a good movie. Too many puppet strings trying to pull it in very different uh, directions. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, the, 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 at the heart of, of most of the, the great, Universal horror films, so like the Dracula, werewolf, mummy movies, is that they're, they're they were sympathetic in some way. You know, werewolf is sympathetic. He he uh, he was cursed by this. Now Dracula is a, is a slightly different story. Uh, you know, because he was he was uh, his appeal was more uh, in that there was a certain romance to it, and there was you know he he. He was uh, cheating death and, and had this eternal life, and he was a romantic figure. I mean, believe it or not, Bella Lugosi got more fan mail than Clark Gable did, you know, when, when that movie first came out. Uh, so he was a sex symbol. But, uh, you know, those movies, Frankenstein's uh, monster was a, a very sympathetic kind of character, you know. And, and uh, I think they missed that in the big reboot of the werewolf movie. Gotcha. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I keep reaching a point where I think that I might get tired of it, and then something else comes up and pops up. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a great movie called They Came Back, uh, which was from France. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah. And it's, its take isn't at all um, similar to any kind of zombies that you might think of. It's, it's a realistic um, idea of that one day the dead just come back. Right. Not as decayed flesh, not as reanimated, but as literally the person that just sort of disappeared is now back on your front door. And all the ramifications that that would have in terms of the economy, uh, society of trying to accept them back. There's a British television series, I can't remember the name of it, that just started up recently, which is kind of the same thing. In that they take a look at the view that the zombie apocalypse is over, that there's now a cure and you have all these zombies that have been gathered up, and they're giving injections. Uh, they're given makeup to make their, their skin look better. They're given eye contacts that allow them to try to return back to society. And the, the series is very dramatic and very serious. takes a look at the conflict that happens when people resist 
uh, bringing these people back into their lives. Once they've seen them as being zombies and as monsters, they just want to kill them. They don't want to see them as being human beings anymore. So there's a lot of interesting kind of takes that are out there. Oh, and then this week, uh, if you're a fan of the video game Plants vs. Zombies, uh, they, which is kids love that game, they actually just unveiled a new high, uh, very high graphic 3D first-person shooter style Plants vs. Zombies called Garden Warfare, in which you are plants running around shooting little needles and seeds at uh, large zombies that attack the farm. That looks right. cool. I'm looking forward to that. That one's going to be a lot of fun. Well, it's funny. You mentioned this, uh, the, the television show about you know, what happens when the zombies come back, where the people come back. Um, it reminded me of a movie called uh, um, Fido. Fido with Billy Connolly. We can find it. It's worth a look. It's, uh, it, it's essentially, the zombies in this movie are pets. And uh, some people get a little bit more uh, attached to their pets than others. And it kind of uh, rips off. It has a, like a 50s kind of feel to it. And uh, it's a really uh, funny, but I think also insightful and, and certainly a unique zombie movie. So yeah, that's one that's... That's one of the, the uh, movies that's far better than the premise seems on paper. Yeah. And I would say that that's partly because you have, well, Billy Connolly, who can take that part and elevate it and give it a bit of, you know, you really sympathize with the character, even though it's a silly sort of, you know, situation. This 1950s kind of idealistic community, and there's supposed to be this uh, zombie that comes into the home. It's, it, it was really well done. Yeah, I'm just throwing a poster for it up here. There we go. Yeah. That's poster for Fido right there. And so, uh, if you can find it, I mean, I don't know how hard it is to uh, to find on uh, DVD, but have a look for it because it it's uh, it's funny and it's smart, and uh, Billy Connolly is a lot of fun. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see if there's like a zombie festival or something. I don't know. Uh, and put together a collection of, of films. Do you, do you get to watch a lot of horror movies or, I mean, beyond reviewing films, do you ever sit down and just watch movies for entertainment at the end oh, of the yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, 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 we do often. I mean, uh, on the weekends, uh, we are often uh, off to the movies uh, to see things either that I missed or to see things that the PMC, my preferred movie companion, uh, wasn't able to go to when I saw them uh, the first time around. And uh, she's a huge movie fan, so we often uh, spend our weekends at the movies. Um, I missed The Purge this week. And The Purge I wanted to see. Uh, I didn't get to see it professionally. Uh, they did screen it, uh, which was a good sign, although it didn't get great reviews, but it conflicted with something else that I had to see, so I wasn't able to go. But it is uh, it only cost $3 million to make. It made $36 million, bringing it in at number one on the box office over the weekend. And it is the cheapest movie in uh, 25 years to become a summer number one. And it's interesting because the last time that that happened uh, was one of the Friday the 13th movies. I think it was part seven. Cost two point eight million dollars to make, and it made eight point six or something, which twenty five years ago was a lot of money at the box office. But two point eight, if you adjust that for inflation, is still way more than uh, the purge cost. And certainly thirty six million dollars is a big load of money to make in one weekend. So, you know, the purge. I mean, what it means is that there's in the purge is about uh, every year. Uh, for you know, 12 hours or 24 hours, all crime is legal, and it's kind of the story about what happens during that time. 
And I, you know, uh, I, I think that the, the the premise sounds kind of intriguing for one movie. I think one movie is probably enough. I think what you're going to see here, because this movie cost nothing to make, and it made a fortune that there's going to be a purge two and three and four coming uh, hot on the heels of this first one. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, when you have that kind of a, a margin between the two, and it's it's schlocky. It has the potential to be very schlocky. Those movies tend to. You know, there's what Carnosaur goes up to five or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> there will be many of them. Hopefully, it's you know. So I, I guess the usual approach to this just to see the first one because that's usually the most clever, and then kind of avoid the, the exploitation ones that come afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I it, it, there are I mean, certainly diminishing returns always when you're. Uh, uh, making sequels, but you know, every now and again, you do hit one that is uh, equal to the first, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I guess we'll, we'll talk about spying. Yes. Um, which has been a huge story. A lot of people have been very interested. If you have missed out on it, um, an agent of the NSA has turned whistleblower. His name is Edward Snowden. He's currently hiding out in a hotel in Singapore. Uh, has decided to him for a long time because he will never get another job anywhere ever in his <laughs> life. Yeah. He has uh, confirmed the existence of a project called PRISM, that's the code name, that allows the NSA, the National Security Agency of the United States, to listen in uh, to telecommunications. And that's everything under the sun. It's not just phone calls and email, but it's also file transfers and videos uh, of that sort. And um, this is, we hinted at the beginning, for a lot of people it's been a big creepy revelation. I have to admit, I've been hearing about this for a long time, at least in the tech scene, there's always been the discussion that there are capabilities within the U.S. government to be able to listen in to phone calls, to communications. It's always been, the debate has been to what extent that power uh, exists, just how big and what scale it is. Um, apparently... I think that the, I mean, the power certainly is the ability to do it. I guess what we're talking about is, you know, is anyone breaking the law? Is the government willing to break the law in such a way to do it? And how widespread is that? And as it turns out, quite, quite right. widespread, yes. Yes. Uh, and, you know, the, the issue that I have with these topics is that, number one, you will never have enough information to really make, up, uh, make a decision about it. Yeah. Unless you're really a part of the story, you're never really going to know what's happening because it's such a salacious topic that everyone who's writing articles about it isn't going to have enough information. They're going to there's going to be miscommunication and, and people embellishing, and so it's it's for me as a media story really tough to kind of latch on. I know a lot of people they just ooh love the details and it's very delicious, but for me I have a real difficult time with that. We'll never really know what the truth is, no, and no. then. Uh, the other aspect is, you know, the, to me this is not a big revelation. The U.S. government has always been kind of listening in and spying right back to the age of J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, it's just whether they're, what the motivation is and what controls are kind of in place. Well, it's funny. I was listening to the radio. I mean, you know, at the radio station that we are both on, uh, you, as you can imagine, this was a big talk topic. It's a, it's a talk radio station, News Talk 1010 in Toronto. And this is something that they've been talking about a great deal. And one of the, the, the announcers uh, just made the point, like, if you don't think that you've been spied on since the 1950s, you're, you're fooling yourself. You know, if you think that, 
Uh, and particularly, I mean, I think it's probably, quite honestly, easier to spy on us now because of all the technology that we all surround ourselves with. Last week, my phone broke. Uh, the little button at the top, uh, the, the lock button, uh, went on me. And apparently on these iPhones, and once something goes like that, they're, you know, they're, they're, there's not much you can do to it. So I took it back to the Apple store and I said, you know, I've got, I have a lot of things on this. I store everything in the cloud, but I've got a lot of my life is on this thing. And the guy's like, I don't worry about it. We'll get you another phone and, and uh, you know, we'll just take a few minutes and we'll, we'll download everything from the cloud. And literally 10 minutes later, I had a new phone and everything, a new identical phone to the one that I had just given up. And uh, with all my emails on it and all my everything, every, apps, everything, and everything was configured the same. There's 500 photographs on here that all appeared. They didn't appear right away, but they did eventually. But everything. And I thought, you know, if, if that information is just in the cloud, it's floating around somewhere. And I mean, I, you know, I'm as tech savvy, not as tech savvy as you, but I'm as tech savvy as the next guy. I mean, I know, you know, I, I work with technology in a very intimate way every day. Um, you know, uh, but I was still kind of surprised at just how easy it was to access that information. Now, granted, I had password protected and that kind of thing, but whatever. I mean, you know, it can't be that hard to get past that to get people's information. It simply cannot be. No. And everything, and everything that I have is up there, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it's to the point where anybody can today just be a spy. I mean, you go on a date with somebody, you Google their name, you can... You know, get all sorts of information about them that you didn't glean from them having to tell you on that first date. Um, I remember the first time that happened I, when I got Googled for the first time by someone who I did, and it was and it was really odd. I really found I, I really thought it was kind of um, uh, not a sort of unnerving in a way, like you know, uh, it, like all the stuff that you might typically just kind of get to know about someone is yeah. out there and you know in through conversation uh, is out there so uh, she knew all about things that I was going like how did you know that I was like of course it's online somewhere and you found it I yeah, it's kind of, it, 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 on one hand it's a little intrusive on the other hand it's terribly unromantic yeah <laughs> right yeah. get to know somebody sort of slowly uh, by asking questions rather than somebody kind of Googling. But yeah, I mean, you know, in, in the tech field, people have been discussing uh, the potential, the possibility since, you know, I think the strongest chatter was when Bush was president because he was relinquishing all sorts of laws and rules allowed on this. Um, you know, the, the question really isn't whether they're, they're spying. We know that they have been for a very long time, but what the motivation is. There's a, you know, you, a difference between a government that's collecting information to thwart potential attacks, right. and then you have somebody like J. Edgar Hoover who's blackmailing people. Well, and, 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 yeah, and potentially just like, you know, creating dossiers on people just in case they ever, you know, displeased him somehow. It, it is interesting to me, and I'm not going to turn this into a, a, to a political discussion, but it is interesting to me that some of the people now who are outraged about this, like Rush Limbaugh, uh, if this had happened 10 years ago during the Bush administration, would be saying, well, we have to protect the country. You know, during the, the height years, the crazy years of the Patriot Act, when it was okay to do almost anything to, you know, to protect the country, uh, you know, those were the people were standing up and saying, well, you know, I mean, we have, we have to protect ourselves. Now it's a, it seems to be a different story because it's a Democrat that's, uh, you know, the figurehead. 
Yeah, I hate that. I mean, you know, stop playing teams. Uh, you know, think about things objectively. Critical thinking is very important. Yeah. You could be you know, judging the topic based on, on what the topic really is. Yeah. Um, a point I will make, though, you know, uh, people get very fearful about this kind of a situation. Uh, it, it's nasty. You know, they, they've said, they, they've come out and they said, well, you know, PRISM has the capability to pick up information based on keywords or based on properties, but it, it doesn't have the ability to target a person. Right. Well, anyone who's ever played with Google and does a search, it's like I may not be able to type in a search for Richard Krauss, but that doesn't stop me from searching for Canadian film critic, right? And you know, right. people, there are ways to kind of target people. But if you're afraid of this, one of the things that I would point out to is that generally when we hear systems like this, they're not terribly effective. Um, and I point to a discussion that we had a few episodes back about the failure of face recognition technology with the Boston Marathon. Uh, and I was thinking at the time of all the rumors I'd heard about these kinds of systems, why was Boston such a failure from an intelligence point of view? If you have the ability to monitor uh, phone calls and communications, how come they didn't know that this was going to happen? And when it did happen, how come they were scrambling to try to solve it through old-fashioned ways? Face recognition didn't work, didn't pick up these two individuals. The only way that they could identify them was to publish their photos on television and hope their relatives called them and identified the people. So as frightening as this can be, often these systems are not as effective as the mythology around them uh, presents them to be. Well, I mean, I think people have this idea from watching, you know, CSI or whatever shows there are that, you know, there are these mega computers where you go, uh, we, we caught a glimpse of this man. We saw this much of his face. Do we have it in there? And you hear, you know, they, they type and then all of a sudden thousands of faces come up and pinpoints one. Nonsense. I mean, these things exist, I guess, but they don't work like that. And, you know, I have a feeling what's happening with all this, this uh, uh, surveillance on phones is that there is an enormous amount of information being gathered, and it's not being correlated probably anywhere particularly uh, or, or effectively. I mean, some of it, maybe so. Maybe they are fine point targeting you know, people that are high risk or, or something, and they're paying extra special attention to them, but they're not paying attention to you and I in any particular way. No, no, it's it's always going to, I mean, they may perform blanket searches in a geographic area, yep. but it, it's not like someone is, is listening to the actual details. They may be collecting information, but they're not making sense of the information that's coming from, say, yourself or myself. But often, you know, the, these people tend to be kind of behind where we would think that they are. Um, I remember in the 1990s when uh, the world was just realizing that there were people with computers that could connect online. And when I say online, I mean through phone lines. Right. Um, what ended up happening was there was a huge um, power failure along the eastern seaboard here in North America, especially in New York City. Right. And um, well, it looks like I got somebody trying to wash my windows here. I mean, <laughs> I, and what ended up happening was that um, there was a, a you know huge panic. Uh, was the United States attacked? No, they weren't attacked. Was this a case of the um, power system having some sort of fault? Nobody wanted to accept blame for that. And then somebody pointed out, you know, there's these teenagers. They've got Commodore 64s, and they're using their phone lines to kind of play around in our telecommunications systems and our power plant systems. I bet you they're behind it. Oh, yeah, there was this huge panic, and you had the CIA uh, busting down the doors of like 17-year-old boys in, in New York and carting away all their computers 
and there was a huge paranoia at the time about it. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. And the worst part was they couldn't do anything about the teenagers because there was no laws in existence. Nobody even understood this whole situation. There was nothing that could be done. What they did was they just seized all the equipment and never gave it back, which was unfair. Really? If you're not charged, you should get your equipment back. But well, you know, it's a Commodore 64 whatever. Although, though back in those days, they probably they, that cost a lot. Yeah. <laughs> when you're 17 years old, your $2,000 computer just left, and it's, you know you want it back. But what came out of that was a paranoia at the time, because uh, here in Canada, we weren't involved, but uh, the teenage boys like myself were connected to those kids in New York. We were hearing about these stories, chattering away on bulletin board systems, and there was a lot of theories as to how the CIA and other organizations were starting to monitor us. Right. Uh, and this is why the Internet began as an anonymous uh, medium because of the fear that the CIA was starting to listen to people. So you had pseudonyms. Nobody identified themselves because there were teenage boys who's had their houses turned upside down to grab their computers. Right, right. One of the interesting things that came out of that, that whole scene, was this paranoia about files being tracked. And there was one particular file. There was a bunch of them, but there was one particular called the Anarchist's Cookbook. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Anarchist's Cookbook was a... Uh, text file that you could download, and I think it was based on a real book that used to exist during the 50s and 60s, because yep. they used to track books that were taken out of libraries, right? They noted if somebody took out a book on household chemistry, they'd write down your name. So there was a culture uh, during the 50s and 60s to take all this information and package it up as sort of, you know, uh, under the table books that would be distributed. Well, as soon as people realized you could transfer information through phone lines, they would come up with text files. And the Anarchist Cookbook was one that when you opened it up, it had a little menu system, and you could choose how to make a homemade car bomb, how to make uh, napalm in your kitchen, all that kind of information. And when you've got 14-year-old boys, you know, searching through files and going, hello, What's this? It was really popular to kind of share back and forth, but there was a theory going around that this was created by the CIA, and they were tracking who was grabbing it and downloading it to sort of follow up and, and track you, which I don't think was true, but it was already that kind of level of, of paranoia that these, these departments had, were so frightened, the thought that you know, uh, teenage kids might unlock uh, nuclear codes or might set off a, a power failure across the Eastern Seaboard. The movie War Games... Yes, was completely based off of that. I mean, there were real scenarios where kids were caught. And most of the time, the kids weren't doing anything particularly nasty. There was a guy named Fry Guy, and his trick was that he could change your phone number. Uh -huh. So what would happen is if I called, tried to call Richard Krause, the phone number, instead of getting you, I would get a triple X sex line. No, it's funny. That was his his big deal. He called himself Fry Guy. And those those were the little pranks and tricks, but people immediately blossomed and thought that number one, the hackers were far more capable than they really were, and then the hackers thought the CIA was far more capable than it was. And to me that's no different than, you know, what happened with J. Edgar Hoover before that, and it's probably the same case here as well. Well, I mean I think that, you know, certainly back in those days, uh the dissemination of information, uh, no, just simply no one had ever been able to do this before. I mean, if you think about when the first printing presses were made and the revolution that that caused, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, and, and people don't understand it and people are afraid of things that they don't understand. And, and you know, you have, uh, you have two plus two in those situations often equals five or six because it freaks people out and they, they overreact and they don't understand 
exactly uh, what's, uh, or, or I guess they feel it's better to be safe than sorry. Right, you know? yes. Uh, and, you know, the, the danger isn't so much that they're going to use this system, um, you know, the, the danger isn't that they're going to listen in, but that somebody's fear because of this. Right. Uh, there will be a politician or there will be a group of people who will be in a position that, to access this kind of technology, that they're going to use it in a way that, that is going to be uh, disruptive, attack our own society, our own citizens, make people, you know, start to have kind of witch hunting trials, that kind of thing. The McCarthyism that existed from before, where they were going around, you know, are you, do you belong to a, a communist party, that kind of yeah. thing. But that's really the danger here, is that this kind of technology could be used in that sense. We don't want that. We don't want people to be fearful. We want people to kind of um, be more subdued. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Probably not in Canada, but, you know. <laughs> uh, Superman, Man of Steel, is opening this weekend. And uh, I thought I'd talk a little bit about uh, some of uh, the people that have played Superman because there hasn't been that many of them. This is kind of surprising to me uh, that really essentially, I think there's only been about eight people that have played live action versions of Superman. And then there's a few others, there's a handful of others that have uh, voiced the character because it, originally he was an animated character. And so the first person... Uh, just, do you have any idea who the first person was? I was surprised by this. No. Uh, well, you mean first person to voice on the radio? Who? On the radio or? Uh, uh, well, no. Uh, it would have been a cartoon. cartoon. Around the same time as the radio show, though. Oh, okay. No, I don't know. Other than, you know, not Orson Welles or somebody like that. No, Mel Blanc. That's awesome. Yeah, this is the voice of Bugs Bunny and all the other Looney Tunes, the most famous Looney Tunes characters. Uh, it was a cartoon called Goofy Groceries, and Superman's in it just for a hair. And he uh, he interacts with a, a King Kong kind of character, and they he, then he becomes afraid. The King Kong, the ape, the big ape, uh, frightens him. But Mel Blanc voices him, so that's really the first time the voice of Superman was heard. And then later there was a guy called Bud Collier that did the voice. And he did it uh, on the radio in an animated series of cartoons uh, that were nominated for Academy Awards. They were, they were very significant. And then, in the, again, in the late 60s, uh, called The New Adventures of Superman, a cartoon series. But the interesting thing about this is Bud Collier may be one of the most sort of significant but maybe lesser-known characters uh, in the whole Superman saga because... He was so popular as the voice of this character that uh, when, in 1943, he said, you know what, I need some time off from the damn uh, radio show. I, I've got to get away. But he was so popular as the voice of the character, they didn't know what to do. They didn't want him to go. So they had to come up with some way to explain his absence. So the writers of the radio show invented Kryptonite. And so, uh, for two weeks, while you know Collier's off sunning himself somewhere, uh, Superman was held under a trap door with a big slab of kryptonite uh, on top of it. So you know he couldn't. I suppose you'd hear, "Let me out! Let me out!" You know things like that. <laughs> you didn't actually hear uh, the voice. And uh, the comics took about six years to kind of cotton on to that as a useful plot device. Uh, but, you know, they did six years later, and then it's been part of the Superman story ever since. 
the other thing about the Collier years that I thought was really interesting is that in the comic books, the detective comic books uh, that you know had made Superman famous in print, he couldn't fly. He only leapt. He could leap over tall buildings in a single bound, right? The famous saying. Uh, but uh, when they were animating that, it looked really silly, they thought, to have Superman kind of run and then leap over a building like that. Uh, so the animators, working in conjunction with Detective Comics, came up with the idea that he should probably fly because it would look cooler. And so that's why Superman flies. It wasn't a, 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 a. It didn't have anything much to do with the comic books. It was uh, other media that sort of influenced that decision. Yeah, because I think the original idea was just that he was stronger. Yeah, uh, he wasn't uh, meant to be like a, an alien, although he's from another planet. It was sort of inspired by the strong men who used to perform in sideshows and carnivals of old. Right? I mean, it was the the kind of guys that would appear. Uh, in the streets and sort of, you know, uh, pay, pay me $10, $10 and I'll let you punch me in the stomach or I'll yeah. let you punch me. I think that there was that kind of, of culture was sort of the drive towards creating Superman. So he would be somebody who could merely jump higher than a, a regular human being and move faster and stronger. Well, uh, but, I, but I, I thought it was interesting because I just always assumed that uh, all the, the lore, the Superman lore, originated in the comic books and it, and it, and it didn't. Um, the first live-action Superman was a guy called Kirk Allen, and uh, Kirk was uh, a, uh, but he was beefy and you know good-looking and whatever else. Oh, oh yeah, he fit all the the uh, the uh, the criteria to play Superman, and he played him in serials. So what you would do is you'd go to the movie, and every week they would release a new uh, episode in the series. So uh, they were probably, you know, they might be 20 minutes long, they might be 40 minutes long, whatever. They were short features, and every week there was a different one, and there might be 15 or 16 of them to make up the entire story. And uh, Alan uh, starred in one called Adam Man vs. Superman, which apparently is the highest-grossing American movie serial ever. And that means, uh, there were tons of serials. I mean, serials were a very popular way of filling up time at the movie theaters. And this, too, you have to keep in mind, was in the days when uh, you didn't necessarily go to the movie at, uh, you know, 3.30 was when the movie starts. You kind of went when you went, and then you might sit through the end of one movie and then sit through the beginning of another one. You sort of, you can come and go. Yeah. Uh, the movie that stopped all that was Psycho. Alfred Hitchcock said, nobody gets in after it starts. He said, absolutely not. Um, Alan's career fizzled after he left uh, the uh, after he retired the Cape, and that seems to be kind of the uh, I don't know the curse of actors who have played Superman because the next guy George Reeves uh, is probably you know the most famous of of this group. I mean, I, you know, Christopher Reeve was I guess probably the most famous of all time. But George Reeve was an enormous television star. He played Superman in 102 episodes of The Adventures of Superman. Uh, later, um, he felt that his popularity as the character inhibited his ability to play other characters and he didn't really work as much. He ended up dying kind of mysteriously. Uh, some say suicide, some say maybe something a bit more nefarious. But there was a movie called Hollywoodland starring Ben Affleck, 
uh, as George Reeves, that kind of uh, Reeves, that sort of has a look at, at his life and, and mysterious death. But he was an enormous star. He did, uh, uh, you know, television commercials and the whole thing, all of the Superman, and had a couple of close shaves, apparently. There was a, a young boy that came to see him uh, with a gun. He was stolen. He was taking his dad's gun. Right, yes. That he could shoot Superman, and he wanted to see the bullets bounce off him. And uh, uh, George saw the gun, realized it was real, and whether it was loaded or not, he wasn't going to take the chance. And the little boy's like, I want to see if the bullets bounce off you. And George Reeves apparently was very calm and very collected and said to the boy, well, of course the bullets will bounce off me, but they might hit one of the other people that are standing here. So really, you should give me the gun. And the whole thing. So uh, uh, he, uh, he had a lot, apparently, like a lot of interactions like that with, with uh his uh, with his fans, uh, and then you know there have been other people: John Newton, Gerard, Christopher Dean Cain, Tom Welling, a lot of Brandon Routh. You know, none of which are exactly household names. And I think that you know the the, the curse of playing Superman uh, plays into that a little bit. But the best known is Christopher Reeve, uh, who played you know, Superman in four Superman movies between '78 and '87, so about nine years there. And, um, you know, the first one, I think, is a classic. It's, it's just a, such a fun movie. Second one, quite good. Third one, yeah, it's watchable. The fourth one is it's just unbelievably bad, but it has some great moments. I watched it over the weekend again. And, I mean, it's really almost unspeakably bad in, in uh, certain parts, but... Uh, there's a scene where he turns into bad Superman. He's bad. He's like picking up women, and it's terrible. And he, and he's in a bar, and he's flicking peanuts at the bottle and breaking breaking all the bottles behind the bar. It's fantastic. And he uh, straightens out the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and so the oh, guy yeah. that has all the little ceramic uh, Leaning Tower, <laughs> you know, goes out of business because of that. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's a it's a it really truly is an awful movie. But it was on TV, so I I sat in front of it. Um, yeah, time really does make cheesy movies better, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. And, and, at the and, time, it would have been, oh, but you know, yeah. now you can just sort of watch it on TV on a Saturday afternoon. And, and sort of sit back and sort of just yeah. have, you know, have a good laugh at it. Um, you know, Christopher Reeve, of course, was paralyzed in a horse riding accident. He was making a, a short film about uh, horse riding safety and had an accident, uh, was thrown from his horse and, and was paralyzed. And he passed away in 2004. But he once asked Sean Connery about how to avoid being typecast. And Sean Connery said, because Reeve was a serious actor who became famous because he was an enormous guy with a huge chest. And he looked like Superman. And he became very popular. And he struggled afterwards to, to sort of shake that. And uh, so he asked Sean Connery, who had left the James Bond series to, you know, to avoid typecasting. And he said, how do we, you know, how do I avoid this? And Sean Connery said, well, first of all, you have to be good enough that they ask you to play it again and again. Then worry about the other stuff, which I think is pretty great advice. <laughs> yeah, as long as you keep working, maybe it's not such an issue. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that's a, that's a brief history of the actors who have played Superman. Uh, Kirk Allen had... Uh, you know, a, a, a long kind of undistinguished career that uh, he retired early, but in 1981, he actually starred in a spoof called Superb Man, the other movie, uh, which was set on the planet of Crapton. So that gives you an idea of the movies oh. he was making. Uh, well, that sounds awful. If you're, I mean, you, you know, that's I've a horrible way to... I've never oh. seen it. Yeah. 
that does not sound nice at all. Um, and then you know you had Brandon Routh. Brandon Routh, you know, I think is uh, someone who uh, has attempted to make a go of it. He appears in small roles, you know, in other films. But, man, it's hard. It's hard, I think. I mean, it happened to Christopher Reeve, too. It's, it's very difficult when your first role that anybody sees you in is Superman. Yeah. Um, it, it is hard for anyone, if you make any kind of impression at all, it's hard to be accepted beyond that. Now, I wonder if it's, if it's different if you're playing a superhero who is a regular guy that puts on a costume, and then you become that, that guy, or if it's because it, in Superman, you are that guy. There is no costume. There is no, you know, you're putting on yeah. that. I, I wonder. I mean, I, I think that uh, part of it has to do with uh, the idea that Superman is not a tormented character. Superman is lightness and good and you know all that so sort of, despite flicking peanuts at you know whiskey yeah, bar yeah. in the fourth one but uh, you know he is he is a, a very virtuous character and so he doesn't have the nuance in the movies anyway that some of the other characters do you know uh christian bale can play batman as a twisted tormented kind of guy and actually bring but you know christopher reed was like this throughout all the batman movies and i think that you know, you get typecast uh, because of that. You get typecast playing this character who is uh, a little too goody two-shoes to have people accept you playing anything darker or, you know, maybe uh, stretching it at all, stretching the, the boundaries at all. So it becomes a role where people think that you're playing it because you wore the role rather than someone who's actually transforming themselves. I, I, I guess so. I mean, you know, I mean that is because uh, you can't be Superman unless you have the physical characteristics. I mean, first yeah, and foremost, you have to be. You have that to be guy. the enormous person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but but surprisingly few people, considering you know, if you think of of uh, you know how many people have played Dracula, if you think of how many people have played Sherlock Holmes, if you who are some of the other most uh, uh, portrayed characters in the movies. Uh, how many actors have played Batman over the years? But but uh, 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 Superman surprisingly few. That's that's interesting, and I I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. It's it's one of those franchises. I'm surprised that they're not going to more often. Well, Maybe there's something very difficult about trying to portray Superman. Well, it has been announced already. Now, whether or not, yeah, this is 100. percent But it's been announced that there's going to be a Man of Steel two. Um, <clears throat> already it was announced on Nikki Fink's site today, Deadline Hollywood, that Warner Brothers is, you know, given the the uh, initial reaction to Man of Steel and the the reviews that they already have and that sort of thing, that they're going ahead and making this. I'll believe that on Monday once the box office is in for the opening weekend, but uh, we'll see. You know, they apparently have have uh, asked Zack Snyder back as director and Henry Cavill as as. Uh, uh, Clark Kent slash Superman, so we'll see. But I, I will believe that when I when I see the box office report. Yeah, because that's an easy story to put out just before it hits theaters to kind yeah. of. Oh, it's so good! It's so good. We've already said yes to a sequel. You know. <laughs> Without anyone seeing this one, we're we're going to spend. We're going to commit another two hundred million bucks. That's what we're going to do. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't believe it. 
Well, um, the other topic I wanted to talk about that was very interesting, uh, and I'm interested in what your take is on it. It's not something that's up your alley, but I wanted to talk about the situation that's happening at the E3 Expo in Los Angeles uh, this week. The E3 Expo is the major industry event where all the companies get together and they unveil all the games that they're going to be uh, bringing out the rest, of the, the rest of the year for the Christmas season. And it's been interesting, unlike in the past couple of years, because this is the year that Microsoft and Sony have been unveiling new console systems. And so you get this competition that's kind of happening between the two of them. And in the past, the way to kind of assess that is to go and see who is the best exclusive games. Right. Uh, you know, both systems will end up paying, playing Grand Theft Auto, both systems will play Call of Duty, but they make deals, little exclusive deals. Microsoft oh, this game will only appear on their system. Halo is one of those. That's normally how you assess it. This year it's a whole different ball game because Microsoft has, by all accounts, kind of lost their minds. Well, they've made the games so that you can only play them on the one console. Aren't there, like, you have to register everything. You can't, uh, you know, like, they've made it so restrictive. And, and it just seems to me that, you know, I mean, I get it. It's what they tried to do with software. That didn't really work particularly well either. I mean, everyone sort of trades things back and forth. Uh, I, I don't really get uh, the optics of it aren't very good. Um, the the uh, the the uh, someone will find a way to to break these codes if they haven't already. Some kid with a you know will figure out how to do it. I, I don't get it. I don't think it's it's good business. Well, that's if people buy the the console in the first place. No, that's the thing. That yeah, yeah. You have this wonderful choice that, that's available out there. But uh, yes, um, it, for, for a while now, the industry has been looking towards moving away from physical discs, from right. the, the model of going into a store and plunking $60 down to get a disc that you take home and put in your system, to one where the games are digital files. And not just files that you would download, but files that you would stream like music online, that you would access this content much like you access a YouTube video. Uh, and the, the problem in doing that is that that changes your relationship with the content because most people, when they think of games now, they think of it as being their property. Yeah. yeah. They paid $60. It belongs to them. Uh, and Microsoft has, for many years now, been talking about, well, there's all sorts of advantages if we can get people to just let go of thinking of it as their property and just allow us to host all this stuff online. Uh, before the current... Xbox, the Xbox 360 came out, the man in charge of Xbox at that time, Jay Allard, used to engage in this conversation with all sorts of people in the media, and he and I had a night where we talked about this a lot. He said to me, you know, what if the next Xbox didn't have a hard drive? Right. What if instead of you buying the games, they're just online and you access them? And I told him at the time, you're going to lose. You get rid of the hard drive. It's no longer our property. We no longer get to, to own the stuff. People want a tangible link to these things. If you remove that, you're going to lose. Your, your, <laughs> we're all going to go somewhere else. Yeah. And when they launched the Xbox 360, they made it with a, a removable hard drive. And they tried to sell a model without a hard drive because I think they were trying to lean people towards it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is something they've been trying to do for a long time, and it's been a point of where they're constantly arguing with their own fans. They're arguing with their own customers. The customers have been repeatedly saying, no, that's not what we want. We want to buy this stuff. We want to own it. We want to do with it as we like. Yeah. And Microsoft keeps saying, if you just can see it from where we are, <laughs> this will be better for all of us. And so it's been a rather bizarre thing. 
So this new Xbox called the Xbox One represents their full commitment to that old idea. And I'm not exactly sure why they're really trying to push it and make it happen. But here's how it works. You can go to a store and still buy a disc just the way that people like. But when you get home and put it into the Xbox, what it does, it does two things. The first is it makes an online copy of that game. You can have your piece of plastic, and they get to have their copy of the game online as they want. But it gets registered to your account. So they now have a record that you, Richard Krause, bought this disc. And we have a record of that online. And every time you go to play, your Xbox will go online just to confirm that fact and authenticate the fact that, yes, you did buy this game. Right. Which is crazy. Yeah. It gets worse. If you decide to turn off your Internet access, you can keep playing for 24 hours, after right. which point the game will just stop. Yeah. Uh, and then it gets complicated when you try to sell your game. Today, a lot of people will take their games back to the store, sell them, uh, and then the that will finance. Order from where I live that that uh, sells uh, um, secondhand games, and there's always people coming and going with little stacks of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're talking about you know uh, like a video game is sixty, seventy dollars. That's not the same as a book. It's not the yeah. same as going to see a movie in the theater. So you have people out there who depend upon financing their own new games by taking their old games that they're not playing anymore and selling them. And then you have people who cannot afford to go and drop uh, $60 every week. And so this becomes a way to go and, you know, when you're poor, you go to places and you get stuff that's used. You get stuff that's hand-me-down and you find the value in that. Uh, to eliminate that is, is nasty because it means that you're restricting access to only people who can afford this kind of stuff on a regular basis. And that's it. There, there's they won't allow rentals with, under this new model. Uh, if you try to sell the game, you have to go through a process where you know the, the, the link to it on your account gets removed so it can be given to somebody else. There may be fees that are involved. They say if you want to give a game, if I said, Richard, this game is awesome, you need to try it, I can only do that once. I can give it to you and I can transfer it from my account to yours and that's it. You know, it's just it's crazy. I don't understand what they're thinking with it. Uh, and this is something that they've been talking and debating about for months and listening to the feedback and deciding we're still going to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I imagine it, it sounds to me, and I, what do I know, really? It sounds, I mean, obviously trying to exert a great deal of control, making it hard to uh, bootleg, trying to, with the idea that, you know, our games are so awesome that people, you know, if they can't resell them, you know, or if you can't buy it secondhand, you'll buy a new one and you'll buy that from us instead, you know, and, and uh, it, it is a typical money grab, big business kind of money grab, and it's the kind of thing that I bet that will disappear in a year when people revolt and say, nah, screw this, I'm not doing this. Well, and, you know, it is a democracy. People get to vote, vote with their money. Uh, and so we'll find out at the end of the year just you know, where the sales go in terms of PlayStation and Xbox. They've hurt themselves because the Xbox One is not backwards compatible, meaning it won't work with your older games on the current system, but it won't work with the accessories. It is a clean break. So that means you're, you're fine to go off and, and, and go to PlayStation because there's no investment here anymore. There's no need for that kind of loyalty. And PlayStation, last night, took full advantage of it. We were all thinking, are they going to do this? And, oh, man. If you were, you know, yeah, of course. It was 
Beautiful, I have to say. Because, you know, Sony did their usual presentation, and then they got to a point where they stood up, and it was a, a, like a speech. Jack Tretton, the head of Sony, came out, and they put up a big graphic like it was the Charter of Rights for Consumers. And they made the promise right there, and they said, you have the right. We are not going to turn down your system. You do not have to connect online to authenticate. No, you can do whatever you want. This is your game. Here's your disc. Do with it as you please. Right, yeah. And the audience just went nuts. Yeah, I mean, well, long You know that at Microsoft, people were going, oh, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Uh, now, Microsoft, obviously, they're not completely oblivious because this whole thing that we're talking about, all these rules, they decided instead of saying this on stage, surrounded by all their fans, that they would just post it on a website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they knew that this was going to be something that would be lots of boos. There would be lots of people yelling and screaming. And so they, they sidestepped that. They had their little event. They did their whole showcase, showed all their games. But they, they chose to leave this to be a discussion on the web. Uh, and that's horrible because it means that they're fully committed to this. They're not going to listen to anybody. They're not going to change. I don't think that two months from now they're going to say, oh, well, we're listening to gamers. We've decided. No, you know, I mean, it's, it's the... They've set the sails on fire, and you know there's no return from the island. It's just crazy. It, it, it is nuts. I mean, I, I, you know, moves like this are, are baffling to me. I'm reading a book right now about the uh, war between Good Morning America and Today. Different, different uh, milieu, but same idea. And Good Morning America trailed Today for 852 weeks or something like that. They were Today's show was the king, was the absolute top of the heap. And then, you know, they would get close, and then they would back away. And ratings-wise, they just couldn't seem to beat them until one week. And NBC's response was just bizarre. Instead of keeping their stars like Matt Lauer there all the time, they gave them Fridays off, giving Good Morning America the chance to really ramp up uh, you know, programming on Fridays and take the week. And uh, they fired Ann Curry in a really kind of unceremonious way. And morning television viewers are very loyal. They want, us, they want the illusion, at least, that the people that they're getting up with and spending time with are friendly and that they're family and that they, that they like one another. And when that happened, uh, you know, Matt Lauer, I mean, just go online and punch in Matt Lauer plus Ann Curry or Matt Lauer plus Q-Score. Uh, it's pretty interesting because you will find that um, um, after Ann Curry left, whether he had anything to do with it or not, people blamed him because he's like the father. He's been there for a long time, and he didn't look out for one of the kids, you know. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating. NBC... Uh, as a as a corporation who's you know very successful and I guess maybe when you've been at the top of the heap for that long maybe they didn't take this threat seriously but it has not worked out for them and it was just a, a case of muddled corporate thinking which is what this sounds like to me too. Yeah, this is I mean it's it's arrogance uh, and it's something I've seen often from large corporations who reach a point of being very successful. Yeah. Uh, you know, where they feel that they're at a point now where they've got everybody so invested in their brand, in their company, and in their games that now they can do something that's terribly unpopular and everybody will just go along with it. Yeah. And it, it's, it takes a while for companies like that to come back around. Sony used to be that arrogant. Uh, they had that attitude with the PlayStation 2. They felt, no, uh, PlayStation is king. Everybody's going to do exactly what we tell them to. 
and they didn't. <laughs> as long as there's another choice in the market, people will go, you know what, I, no, I'll go play their system because they'll let me do what I want to do. And, and you know, I, But it's, it's bizarre the disconnect that does happen, that uh, these companies can become so arrogant, but also just the executive attitude. I think that these people tend to become gamblers. They, they want to kind of throw everything to the wind. I'm not sure why they do it. You know? Well, if this works... And I, it doesn't sound to me like it's going to, but if it does work, because people do get complacent. People themselves go, oh, but I really want this game, and I'll put up with you. So you never know. But, it, I mean, it, clearly, I would think that uh, Microsoft has figured that if this does work, there has to be a windfall of money that will follow. Yes. You know? Uh, my take on it has been because what has happened is this is not the, the, the same Xbox. You know, the, the original people that brought us the first successful system, they're gone. Right. Um, they've all been replaced by new Microsoft executives who come from other departments. Right. Uh, the one man that's in charge, Yusuf Mendy, actually used to be in charge of MSN Search when it was a failure. And so this, to me, I think Microsoft has felt they're impatient. The, the, they didn't want to do the Xbox in the first place. But uh, one of the co-inventors, Seamus Blackley, convinced Bill Gates. He said, look, you need to do this because this is your chance to get into the living room. Right. Yeah, as yeah. long as you're a computer company, you will never be a part of this. Sony's going to kill you. All these other companies are going to kill you. The living room is where most of the money is. Right. And um, they believed in that. They bought into that. And I think they just have become impatient. It's like, right. when are we going to make this into a living room box that allows us to do TV and all these other things? And so this is their big move to do that. Uh, and the problem is that in doing so, they've made it clear they don't care about games. Right. You know, and that's, you can't let go of the one. You can sort of slowly achieve the other. And I think they've just become arrogant and impatient, and, well, we'll see what happens with them. But right. it's been a very interesting situation. Yeah. And one that I'm sure is going to duplicate itself, not just for games, but for digital books, for digital movies. You know, you get this scenario playing out in other ways as well. Well, the thing that people don't know about digital books is that when you buy them, and I buy, I buy from my Kindle, I buy books in there, you know, some are $2.99, some are free, others are 15 bucks. Like you're paying, you know, actual money for some of them, uh, and but you don't own them. They're not your property. They are just a digital file that was, that's sort of being loaned to you uh, for the for the amount of time that you are using them. But they're not your books. It's not it's not like this bookshelf full of books that I have sitting next to me here, uh, where they, that uh, you know I they are mine to do with what I want. Uh, these books are uh, you know very much uh, part of uh, whoever it is that I'm buying them from. They're not mine. Yeah, so you, they're yours as long as you can connect to the service. Yeah. Uh, and as long as the publisher decides to, to keep them as is, because the, the catch-22 is, yes, uh, we can get free updates that yeah. enhance our products that add new features, but also it allows companies to change those products, to take yeah. away features, or to even censor books or, or yeah. make adjustments that we may not want. So, yeah, it's, it's a tough issue to kind of surf as we become more and more of a digital culture, but one that, I don't I mean, E3 has always been kind of boring in the sense that it's hard to declare who the winner is. We know all three companies tend to do very, very well. This year was different. <laughs> it's been yeah, this it's interesting. Uh, well, uh, go to heyallyouzombies.com. There will be uh, trailers for Astro Zombies and other things up there. And, uh, and uh, you can uh, leave us messages. Let us know if there's anything you'd like us uh, to chat about. If you have any story ideas or any of that sort of thing, let us know. Be in touch. 
heyallyouzombies.com. It's easy, it's cheap, and we're not going to uh, put you. We're not going to tap your phones. We're not going to charge you extra for content. We're not going to do any of the things that big evil corporations do. All right. Thank you very much. See you next time. <laughs>